Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Erin O'Toole's response to a Quebec teacher being removed for wearing a hijab is at odds with some of his MPs. This is an area where federal leaders have said uh, what their approach would be on federal jurisdiction and would respect provincial, uh, the provincial competencies. That's, that's will be my approach. The government responds to the Auditor General report calling into question the effectiveness of some public health measures. Three times more deaths in the U.S. would mean that we would have had 60,000 more deaths in Canada had we followed the same epidemiological evolution of the United States. And the common speaker puts an end to the order to produce documents on two scientists fired from a high security lab. Our principles here when it comes to the, the document release is that we want transparency and we want to be able to bring that to Canadians as well. Uh, if there's sensitive information, that information can be limited. But the general principle here is Canadians want to know what happened, what's going on, and we want to make sure that this government is being held to account and being transparent. It's Friday, December 10th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Mark. So there's been a lot of reaction, obviously, to the removal of a school teacher in Western Quebec who was wearing a hijab. Politicians have been commenting on this. Um, and and there's obviously because this is an issue in Quebec, there's been a reluctance on the part of some federal uh, politicians to weigh in on this issue ever since Bill 21 became law. So what are you seeing as as some of the major themes that are developing as a result of this teacher being removed? I think this is becoming one of those flashpoint cases where it's getting some attention beyond Quebec. I mean, this is not really a new story. This law has been in place since 2019. It's, in fact, a very popular law among a large majority of Quebecers, Francophone Quebecers predominantly. Um, you know, the context there is that, um, you know, Francophone Quebecers are very concerned about the protection of the French language and culture, and they also really believe strongly in secularism um, in, in a way that's interpreted differently than elsewhere in Canada. Um, and yet this is one of those stories where, you know, it took place just across the river uh, from Ottawa and Chelsea, Quebec, and it involves an English school board, which is an interesting scenario because there's been some changes there recently um, in response to court decisions. And... I think the other thing that I know really sticks me uh, sticks out to me in the story is that this this grade three teacher was reassigned to an alternate role that is in fact a literacy project for the entire school on inclusion and awareness of diversity. And I think that sort of detail really jumped out at me, and I imagine jumps out at a lot of people. That it, it I think many people would find that ironic. Yeah. Um, so it's just one of those cases that I think, you know, things bubble along for a long time. And it's not that we haven't heard about Bill 21. And it's not that we haven't seen difference uh, of opinions and divergence of, of views and, and really clashing perspectives and misunderstandings between Quebec and the rest of Canada. That story is as old as Confederation. But I feel like this is one of those cases where it's really um, poking through a bit. And I find, you know, one thing that happened that was really interesting politically, if we think about where the parties stand, is, you know, the NDP and the Liberals and the Conservatives have taken very similar positions, and that is that 
they're against it in theory. Um, they wouldn't pass such a law, um, but they're not going to intervene. The Liberals have left the door open to federal intervention um, in a way the Conservatives and the NDP have not. But still, they're just sort of, you know, this is a Quebec jurisdiction issue. It's their fight. Um, you know, people are challenging it. Let's like let this wind its way through the courts. Um, but what we saw yesterday with some Conservative MPs is perhaps another... Another point that might be a bit of contention between um, some Conservative MPs in caucus and and the position of Aaron O'Toole, right? Um, and that's that a few of them spoke out. They, you know, they took to social media to speak out against what was happening. And you know, there was a very strong language in a tweet from Ontario MP Kyle Seaback, and he said, "quote I cannot, in good conscience, keep silent on this anymore. This is an absolute disgrace. It's time politicians stood up for what's right." Bill 21 has to be opposed in court, in the House of Commons, and in the streets. So that's a very strong opinion and a very different opinion um, that the leader, Aaron O'Toole, has has taken in terms of this is something that is entirely up to Quebec to deal with. So um, we'll see if things change. I mean, it's also interesting um, to have people in Quebec, including those who, who are opposed to this law and have been fighting it, saying... Okay, yes, um, this is an unfortunate thing that's happened, but this has been going on for a long time now. So, um, you know, wh- where have you been sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens going forward. All right, let's turn to the report from the Auditor General and uh, a couple of interesting angles to that report related to the pandemic. Um, the Public Health Agency of Canada, the Auditor General says, struggled to keep track of whether travelers who were ordered to stay in quarantine hotels actually did so. And then there was um, a failure on the part of um, Employment and Social Development Canada to um, inspect the farms that hire temporary foreign workers to keep tabs on how well those employers were protecting their staff during the pandemic. So, uh, you know, I don't know that Anybody's going to be surprised that some of these hastily arranged measures were difficult to implement, but the Auditor General is flagging some important issues here. Yes, the Auditor General, Karen Hogan, um, she said this was not a success story. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's sort of her, her headline quote today. So the the, the latest audit um, revealed the government still could not verify whether more than a third of travelers followed quarantine Orders at all. Um, that was an improvement from earlier in the pandemic when that number was 66%, but it still wasn't great. Um, they had no idea what became of, you know, about two thirds of travelers who were suspected of flouting quarantine orders after the Public Health Agency of Canada referred their suspicions to law enforcement. There was also uneven punishment, too, for rule breakers. And this is something that we had been hearing anecdotally um, throughout the the regime of quarantine hotels. So, as she said, of the 71 people who refused to go outright to a quarantine hotel and 45 people who were found to have left without permission, only 13 received tickets. Um, and it was really largely dependent on where people lived, which is something I remember um, seeing reports about at the time. Um, you know, for example, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the territories never even adopted the ticketing regime. And then, yeah, when it comes to uh, migrant workers, uh, the Auditor General also found that federal inspectors were failing to make sure farmers were properly protecting migrant workers from COVID-19. 
And she said that included some situations where inspectors received reports and evidence that health and safety violations had in fact occurred. Um, so, so lots of problems there. And and this is, um, you know, speaking of the quarantine hotels, this is this issue about hastily arranged measures um, is really newly relevant because the government has now reintroduced several strict rules in response to the spreading of the Omicron variant. And we are hearing more reports of lots of chaos and confusion and, and difficulties yeah. with, with quarantine hotels that some people are having to stay at again. All right. Um, let's talk about a ruling from uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons um, related to the documents. Now, th- this is connected to the case of two scientists who were fired uh, from a lab in Winnipeg. Uh, there's been a lot of secrecy around this issue. Uh, what is the latest on this, and what did the Speaker rule? That's right. So, um Yesterday, the Speaker ruled the Conservatives have lost their bid to resurrect a House of Commons order demanding the release of these secret documents related to the firing of those two scientists. So Speaker Anthony Rhoda ruled that the order expired, um, along with all of their business before the House, when Parliament was dissolved in August for a federal election. So it's not entirely over now, though. Rhoda says that it's now up to the House of Commons committee in the new parliament to decide whether to issue a new order for protection of the documents. Um, And even then, he said that MPs would have to wait and see whether the government complied with a new order before lodging a complaint that their privileges had been breached. So the sort of whole process has to um, start again. Um, So, you know, meanwhile, uh, a little earlier, um, government House leader Mark Holland had um, you know, last week proposed a, a bit of a compromise um, yeah. that would involve creating a special all-party security cleared committee to review the documents, um, identical to what was set up in 2010 um, by the previous Conservative government of Stephen Harper to deal with opposition demands at the time to see the unredacted documents um, regarding, if you remember, the, the treatment of detainees handed over to Afghan authorities by the Canadian military. Um, the Conservatives this week rejected that proposal and suggested that another sort of compromise um, that his party might go along with the proposal it had previously rejected, which would be allowing national security officials to help advise the parliamentary law clerk on what should be redacted. So um, this fight is still not over, but the ruling from Rhoda suggests that the, the fight sort of needs to start again um, from square one, and we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah. All right, and just quickly, Joanna, the Canadian press has a scoop today on an interesting story related to electric vehicles, and um, and of course there there's a push coming from the government uh, towards the manufacturers of cars to to sell a certain number of electric vehicles. Uh, what is the latest on that that the Canadian press is reporting? So um, we're reporting a story by Mia Rabson today um, that Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau says he wants a national mandate uh, forcing auto dealers to sell a certain number of electric vehicles to be in place by the end of next year. Um, And he says he can do this through regulations rather than bringing in a whole new suite of legislation, as that would be quicker. So um, this is something that was promised during the election campaign by the Liberals, but we weren't aware of the timeline, and experts are saying that if the Liberal government wants to meet its target of having half of new vehicles sold be electric by 2030 and 100% by 2035, and 2035 is really not that far away, this is something that's really going to have to be done soon. So 
Um, you know, Canadians have been buying a lot more electric vehicles in the last two years um, than the previous eight years combined. But Canada is still only at 3% of new cars registered were either battery electric or plug-in hybrid. So there's still a long way to go. Um, and the move to electric cars, the rapid, ambitious move to electric cars, is really a big part of Canada's target um, and goal to get to net zero emissions across the board by by the middle of this century um, because road transportation in that sector makes such a, a, a big um, component of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada. Um, and we found, you know, that in provinces that have sales mandates, um, right now, uh, well, Quebec and, and British Columbia have had it for the longest. Ontario had it until 2018. Um, and now Atlantic Canada and the territories have had it for a little while. We see that really the bulk of electric cars sold in Canada, like by far, are sold in those provinces. Right. So, um, you know, he's saying, listen, it works. So let's let's bring this in across the board and let's do it quickly. All right. Very interesting. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. But the idea the United States is going to unilaterally use force to confront Russia invading Ukraine is not on the, in the cards right now. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Thomas Walkham argues Canada is being drawn into a new Cold War that it doesn't need or want. Wacom writes, Unlike the fight over communism, this conflict with Russia makes no pretense of ideology. Today, it is all just big power politics. This week, U.S. President Joe Biden made it clear that America won't respond militarily if Russia invades Ukraine. But he is said to have told the Russian leader in a digital meeting that anything else is possible. In short, the table has been set for a new, warmed-over Cold War, and Canada will be expected to take part. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues the government has slowed to a crawl. Martin writes, Be it calling together his new caucus, appointing a cabinet, setting up cabinet committees, or waiting until the final week of the fall common sitting to reveal the state of government finances, Justin Trudeau has elevated foot-dragging to a dark political art. It's strange behavior for a third-term prime minister whose staff should have figured out how to fire up the engines of government and hit the accelerator by now without months of pointless pondering and delay. At iPolitics, Alan Freeman argues the Conservatives' war against independent boundary commissions is spurious. Freeman writes... Gerrymandering is one of the curses undermining U.S. democracy. Canada has been spared this kind of awful spectacle, largely because of a system of nonpartisan electoral boundary commissions in place since the 1960s. But this quiet Canadian success story seems at risk of being blown up as the Conservative Party has decided it's time to open a new front in its all-consuming battle with the Liberal Party, Another disturbing signal that the Tories have given up on working together with political rivals on matters of public interest. Now here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will visit the Scarborough Health Network's Centenary Hospital. He and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will also meet with the Women's Economic Council before he speaks with supporters at a fundraising event in Toronto. 
Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne will take part in a virtual fireside chat to mark the one-year anniversary of the 50-30 challenge. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will tour an Abbotsford, British Columbia poultry farm undergoing flood recovery. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser will mark International Human Rights Day by attending a virtual citizenship ceremony. And the Senate Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs will hear from Justice Minister David Lametti. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, December 10th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend. <laughs>